So last night we talked about Revelation and told you a little bit about why it's my favorite book to teach, why it has so much to say to us as Christians, and why it's kind of just really misunderstood. And it gets a bad rap. I mean, I know Christians, literally, I know Christians who have been Christians for 20, 30 years, and they've said to me, I'm afraid to read the book of Revelation. I mean, they told me that, and I just shake my head and think, that is so sad because of all the books that we should be the least afraid to read, uh, Revelation should be at the top of the list. In fact, it's the only book in the New Testament that actually says, blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy and those who keep what it says. Only book in the New Testament that has a blessing contained within it for people to read it aloud because Revelation was meant to be heard. Um, Anybody know that Bibles are a relatively new thing in history? Um, Before the printing press, most people never had one. Uh, this just a Bible like this would be worth the income of an entire village in Jesus's day. Just the fact that you could carry around all of the scriptures in your pocket, much less on your phone. So it's it's pretty mind-boggling what we have access to. But of all the books, Revelation is the only one that actually specifically says, you know, blessed are the ones who read aloud. It's meant to be heard uh, because it's a lot more like a symphony than it is like a book. Um, and by that I mean, we talked about uh, last night a little bit about the structure and how it goes and it has some refrains. And if you ever go to a symphony or listen to a symphony, it's the kind of same thing. There'll be a kind of a refrain. The music will sound similar and then it'll go into another movement and then it'll come back and it'll play a variation on that same theme, but from a slightly different perspective. And Revelation does that as well. One of the reasons that it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around is because it's speaking and it's written in a different, well, one, it's literally written in a different language, but even when we can read the language, it's still written in a different culture. And I want to demonstrate this. This is my favorite way to show this. So I said I go to India every year, and I, and I teach um, and, and work with pastors over there. So two trips ago, um, I've been there three times. So a couple of trips ago, I got a newspaper while we were in the state of Odisha, which is on the east coast of India. And I was just flipping through the newspaper, and I can't read a single word. I mean, the script is all, it looks like bubbles and hearts, and it's just weird looking. And I read Hebrew, and this looks weird. So you know how weird it is. But but that's just because it's not my language. I don't know anything about it. So I came across, and I saw this cartoon, and no clue what this means. It's a little guy with a beard, and he's holding a monkey's tail over the fire. And the monkey's obviously not happy. That's all I knew. But I realized there's a story in this, and I don't know it. I knew enough to know, I don't know what this is about, but I know it's saying something because it's in a newspaper. There's a reason that this will be published. So I asked my translator, we were riding the car, I said, explain this cartoon to me. Because I have a feeling that this, I was teaching on Revelation that year, by the way, so it was just perfect timing. I said, I'm going to use this in tonight's talk. And so explain this. So he looked at it for a minute, he's Christian. And he looked at it and he said, oh, okay, I see what's going on. He said, this is, this is based on an old Hindu folktale about this guy named Raban, who, who uh, I think Raban was like, there was a monkey king or like this monkey spirit or something. And, and this little guy, I think Raban's the guy, maybe he's the monkey. I couldn't, I mean, it's, it's totally foreign to me. But he would like, he would like pester him, persecute him or do stuff to, to just annoy him, you know, like lighten his tail on fire. So it was, it was but it was a well-known thing to all of the people in this state where I was. I have no clue what any of this means, but they could read it. So then I said, well, what's the writing? He said, well, this up here is, um, I got to read on it. He says, the, the guy, the monkey guy is saying basically, oh, this is just like with Raban, just like 
with the story. It's just like the story all over again. I said, well, okay, well, I don't know the stories. That didn't help me. But then I said, well, what is this writing here? Because there's, there's writing right here, and there's writing here, and this guy. And he said, well, this is the prime minister of India. That's a caricature of him. And this represents, this says the voters. So this represents the voters, the people in India. And this fire that the prime minister is stoking to the annoyance of the people says fuel rate increase. The prime minister had raised the price of fuel somehow, and it was hurting the people. And it had, but so, so looking at that, I was like, huh, I would never have got that ever in a million years because I don't know the culture. I don't know the language, and I don't know what's going on at the time. But my translator, who's younger than me, I mean, just normal guy, lives over there in India, uh, picked her up, could look at it, take two seconds and go, oh, yeah, this is what he's saying. It's a critique of the prime minister of India for what he did with the raising the fuel prices. Huh? How do you get all that from that? Well, that's kind of, that's a lot how Revelation works. In the story of Revelation, there's the equivalent. There are giant animals in Revelation. And there are people who are figures who represent things. And there are images like fire that represent something that's not literally a fire, but it's actually something going on that the Christians at the time would have known. They would have got it. Why? Because it was written to them. Just like we saw last night, the people at Laodicea, you wouldn't have had to go through and spell out how each of Jesus' things that he says about them corresponds to their city. They would have got it immediately. They would have understood it. So our challenge as readers is we're separated by 2,000 years of culture, history, language, politics, all of it. So what we have to do when we're studying the Bible is we have to, one, we have to realize that and just take a deep breath and go, okay, I'm a long way away from this. But number two, realize that the Holy Spirit hasn't left us hopeless. He's given people, he's appointed pastors and elders and apostles and teachers and preachers. He's called people in the body to be able in community to help work through and explain a lot of the stuff in scripture that's hard to understand. There's a great passage in Peter's letter where he says, Paul writes this stuff and it's really hard to understand. I'm like, man, that's Peter. That's who Jesus said, I'm going to build the church on this rock. And you have that same rock going, Paul writes stuff that's hard to understand. So it gives us some leeway. Um, Well, There's so much that could be done about Revelation. I have a whole study and have spent weeks and weeks and weeks teaching it in churches. But I want to show you just tonight the heart of the book. The heart of the book. The the book goes through these cycles and you read about these things going on on earth. And then you read about these things in heaven. And then you read about these events that are happening that sort of come from heaven to earth. And then some things that come from earth to heaven like the smoke, the prayers rising up to God. All this stuff's going on. And it's making this cyclical movement over and right at the heart. Right in the middle of the book, chapter 12, there's a story that's really, really similar in its purpose to this kind of thing. There's a story that takes place, and, and it's, it's a Christian version of a very well-known, very widespread ancient myth. The Bible is not mythology in the sense that it's make-believe, but the Bible does contain mythology in the sense that it uses stories that have symbolic purpose to tell real truth in a non-literal way. And I'll show you an example. We'll look at it. In the ancient world, in, in so many cultures, like throughout the ancient world, in all of these cultures, there was this variation of a myth that they all knew. They all had some version of this thing. And it was called, it's a lot of different terms, but most uh, scholars just call it the combat myth. 
And the combat myth, there was an Egyptian version, there was a Greek version, there was a Mesopotamian version, there was a, every culture kind of had its own version of this combat myth. It was this overall thing that had just seeped into the consciousness of humanity wherever they were. And in the myth, there's usually, it's, it works something like this. There's a dragon, or sometimes he's a serpent, sometimes he's like a sea serpent, uh, sometimes he's just this kind of just monster beast type thing. There's this bad guy. And he, he's like the personification of evil or chaos. And it's not always a he. Sometimes it's a she. In Babylonian, it's a she. Um, but this monster is the symbol of all things evil. And then there's usually, there's a hero. And the hero is, is destined, like before the hero's born, or right when the hero's born, it said, this hero is going to one day slay the beast. This hero is going to one day kill the dragon. This hero is going to one day overthrow evil. And so it's in all of these myths, and, but, it, but it's the same thing. And so within the general combat myth, you have, so the dragon, the monster, the, the, the bad guy, finds out or knows this and, and does something to try to kill the hero when he can, to try to get him while he's a baby or even before he's born or right after he's born. In all of these myths, there's some variation of this. And uh, it even continues on into modern myth-telling and modern Hollywood. You know, Terminator coming back in time to kill Sarah Connor before her baby is born and frees everybody. I mean, that's, that's, that's a variation of the combat myth. It's, it's, it's not anything that's new at all. So the dragon, the monster, the bad guy tries to kill uh, either the baby or the baby and the mother or s- tries to take him out before he can grow up and kill the dragon. And either the the God, whoever is worshipped, whatever culture it is, or the gods, plural, they, they save or they protect the mother somehow. They, they use you know, the elements of creation or I think in the Greek version, they whisk her off to an island where the child can grow up safe or something. The gods, they thwart the bad guy's plan. They thwart the monster's plan so that the hero does grow up and then does come back and does defeat the evil one. That's in all of these. So here's two examples. So in Egyptian, it happens, there's this goddess named Isis. And Isis, not like Isis in the Middle East, but a totally different Isis. We'll get to them later. But, but Isis, the Egyptian goddess, and it, it, she was this regal mother. She's, she's depicted with, with this, like the symbol of the sun. That's the, the disc is usually the sun. And then the horns are the horns of the bull. It's a sacred animal. Anyway, she's depicted as like the heavenly mother. And she's nursing her son, Horus, who's going to grow up to destroy the monster, the evil force, the evil god, Set, or Seth. And so it's like this, there's this perennial war going on between Horus and Isis, Osiris, and Seth. And it's like, he, and so there's this conflict, and, and, and in the Egyptian stories, it, it, it takes place in different ways. Regardless of how it all works out, the archetype is there. The Egyptians knew this kind of story, and they had these figures. And then the Greeks. The Greeks had the same thing. They had this woman, Leto, or Leto, and she was, uh, was going to give birth to Zeus's son, Apollo. And Python, the dragon, which is where we get the term Python for a really big snake, Python was the dragon that knew that, that Apollo would grow up to kill him, so he tried to kill them. So here's, here's from, these are like Greek carvings, and here's Python, and he's, chasing after Leto, and she's got Apollo and his sister Artemis in her hand, and they're fleeing. And then here's one where she's 
she's being shielded, she's being protected by the gods, and little Apollos has the bow and arrow in his hand because he's going to one day end up actually killing Python with a bow and arrow. So again, Greek culture had it. This is before Jesus. This is before Revelation. This is like hundreds of years before. They had this story. Everybody had a version of this story. They knew it. It was just kind of in the human DNA. We know that there's an evil force. We know that things aren't how they're supposed to be. And we know that there's going to be a rescuer. And this rescuer is going to be a person, a human. It's going to be born into the realm of men. And he's going to do something that's going to one day defeat this evil that pursues us and chases us all our lives. This was in the common imagination of the cultures into which the Bible was written. So then we come to Revelation, and actually, the Genesis has its own version. That when Genesis is being written, they, the author of Genesis, Moses, whoever wrote it, picks up on this and uses it to tell the story of Satan. We read in the fall, in the beginning, Genesis 3, after humanity, Adam, you know, Adam and Eve are standing there, Eve takes a bite, gives it to Adam, everything that just falls apart, sin enters the world, God shows up to judge humanity. He shows up to pronounce the verdict on rebellious humanity. And the first thing he does before he addresses the woman, before he addresses the man, he turns to the who? The serpent. And he says to the serpent, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. This doesn't say that snakes used to have legs. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's an ancient Near East expression for saying you will grovel. You will be subdued. You will, we even say it today, you'll bite the dust. I mean, that's, that's the same idiom as what's in the Bible. So it's this curse on, on, on the serpent. We don't even know at this point who the serpent really is. And only in the New Testament we find out, oh, that's who it is. It's Satan. It's the one who was there from the beginning. It's the one who's been waging war against us all along. And so God says to him, I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. So the offspring of the woman, this promised one of the woman, it's going to have a hostility between him and between the serpent. And then he says, uh, he will crush or strike or bruise. It's the same word in Hebrew. It's the same. He will crush or strike your head, though you will crush or strike his heel. So in other words, the, the, the Genesis account says it makes the same promise. There's going to be a time when the, the offspring of the woman, an offspring of the woman, a human being, is going to come. And he, there's going to be all this enmity, this hostility between the serpent and, the, and humanity. And then one day, this one is going to come and he's going to crush your head. He's going to destroy you. That's what crushing somebody's head does. You don't recover from a head crushing. All right, You can recover from a broken foot or something, not a head crushing. He's going to crush your head, even though in the process you're going to bruise or you're going to crush or you're going to strike his heel. You can recover from a heel injury. It's not a big deal. I mean, it hurts and it's bad, but it's not fatal. So that's right there in the Bible is also this echo of this myth that everybody in the ancient world kind of knew. They just kind of knew this is how things should go. This is how things should be in the future. So then we come to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Thousands of years after this myth has been circulating in humanity, thousands of years after Genesis was written down, you come to the middle of Revelation, literally the middle of the book, and there's this, this chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, right in there, there's this section, and it's this little mini saga, this mini epic. And we're just going to look at the first part of it in Revelation 12, because I want to walk you through how the signs, how the symbolism works, and so you can see what the author is actually saying, because it's pretty mind-boggling. 
chapter 12 of Revelation, it begins, it says, then a great sign. So all this stuff has happened, and John's seeing visions and things are going on. It says, then a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. There's so much symbolism just in that one sentence that we don't have time to get into. But that would be resonating with the readers in John's time who knew Egyptian culture, they knew Greek myths, they knew Roman myths, and they knew the Hebrew Bible. They knew all of these resonances and they would say, they would see this picture of the woman and their minds would go back to Eve or if they were Christians, it might go back to Mary, but Mary herself is kind of the fulfillment of the promise to Eve. So they would understand this is this, this woman that they see is kind of symbolically us, humanity, the people of God. And it says, verse 2, she was pregnant and was screaming in labor pain, struggling to give birth. This is before you got the shot that made labor a little bit less miserable. This is back when going into labor was uh, had sometimes up to a 50% chance of killing you if you were a woman giving birth. This is back when it was a big deal to have a baby. I mean, still it's a big deal, but physically, mortally, it was a big deal. And this also echoes to the reader because in Isaiah, God had described Israel as a woman laboring, struggling to give birth to the Messiah who would come and rescue her. So all of these images are swirling around in this vision that John has. Verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, a huge red dragon that had seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven diadem crowns. A lot of symbolism in that. Not even going to get into it, but this is the dragon. This is the chaos dragon. This is the thing that... Everybody recognizes this is the final boss of this video game. This is the bad guy. So it says, on his head were seven diamond crowns. Now the dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. This is how you know Revelation is not talking literally. Because stars can't be hurled to the earth. Because stars are huge and the earth is tiny. So it's not literal. This is symbolism. This is a story. Woman screaming out in pain, about to give birth. Huge dragon that's all-powerful, almighty, seeming, threatening, tail sweeping down the stars. This is a bad, bad situation. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he might, what? Devour her child as soon as it was born. Just like every other iteration of this story. The woman's going to give birth to the, the, the chosen one, the hero. So I've got to kill it. I've got to, I've got to kill it before it grows up and can kill me. So the woman gave birth to a son, a male child, who is going to rule over all the nations with an iron rod. That's a quote from one of the Psalms that was applied to the Messiah of Israel. Her child then was suddenly caught up to God and to his throne. And she fled into the wilderness where a place had been prepared for her by God so she could be taken care of for 1,260 days. Don't get sidetracked by the number. That number pops up in different forms all throughout the book, 1,260, and it just means there's a limited set period of time that will involve suffering, but that will be finite in duration. Um, Verse 7, then as a result of this, so dragon's ready to pounce. As soon as she gives birth, I'm going to snatch him. I'm going to devour him, and then she gives birth, and then all of a sudden he ascends. The child's gone, and the woman flees, and she's ushered to safety. And the dragon, he can't, there's no victim anymore. 
Then, verse 7, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So as a result of this male child being taken up into heaven, war breaks out. The dragon fights back, but the dragon was not strong enough to prevail. There was no longer any place left in heaven for him and his angels. So that huge dragon, that ancient serpent, the one called the devil or Satan who deceives the whole world was thrown down to earth and his angels along with him. So this is where we see the Christian, the gospel version of this combat myth. A lot of people read this and they go, oh, this is talking about when Satan fell from heaven before the creation of the world. No, no. This happens as a result of the woman giving birth to the child and the child being taken up to heaven. And it's that event It's the child being taken up to heaven and seated in the heavens. It's that event that leads to the downfall, to the outcast of Satan from heaven. Because Satan's whole role throughout the Bible, his whole role, his name, Satan's not even a name, it's a title. It comes from a Hebrew word, hasatan, which means the one who accuses or the accuser or the prosecutor, if you want to think about modern law. That was his goal. That's his entire purpose, was to prosecute, to to go before God and to say, hey, look at her, look at him, look at her. They're breaking your law. They're falling away. They're rebelling. They are guilty. That was his role. That was his job. That's what he did. And because of this one event, because of this male child being taken up to heaven, now all of a sudden, Satan can't do that anymore. There's no place for him in heaven. He's cast down to the earth. He's defeated. Jesus said the same thing while he was on the earth. Jesus said in John 12, so the gospel of John 12 sheds a lot of light on what happens in Revelation 12. In John's gospel, when Jesus is talking and he's about to go to the cross, Jesus is explaining to his followers, hey, this is what's about to happen. This is why I'm here. He says, now it's the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world, which is what he called Satan, the ruler of this earth, will be cast down. And when I am lifted up from the earth, his ascension after his resurrection, ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, the thing you say in church every week in the Apostles' Creed, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John makes it clear. He said this to show what type of death he was going to die. See, Jesus came to die. He knew he came to die because his death was the thing that was going to crush the head of the serpent. It wasn't. That's the thing that Satan got duped the whole time. He's thinking, if I can just destroy Jesus, if I can just get Jesus crucified, if I can just get Jesus arrested, if I can get Jesus taken out of the picture, then I'm good. And lo and behold, when it's all said and done, he realizes, huh, that was the very means by which he beat me. By going through that death, by experiencing the crushing of the heel, He crushed the head of the serpent on the cross and through his resurrection. So Easter, right? Bunnies, eggs, pastels. Where the heck did that come from? Easter is the celebration. Easter is the triumph. Easter is the rising up of the Lord of the universe who crushed the head of the serpent. Easter Sunday would be really different if it involved stomping on heads of serpents instead of bunnies bringing chocolate. I mean, it is a, it's, it's so different than the sentimental version that we know. Check this out. This is a picture of an archaeological discovery. This is, this is actually one of the, it's a drawing of a photograph of this thing because the thing is in a museum. This is an actual bone 
with a nail from a crucifixion that was dug up out of sight in Jerusalem. Now, obviously, it's not Jesus's because there's no bones of him around. But a lot of people got crucified. And this is, this is the heel bone. This is the bone. When they crucify you, they turn you sideways. And they would drive the thing through your heels. Because that's a big, thick, solid bone that can hang and hold the body weight. Or they would kind of, you'd kind of straddle the thing like, like this, and they would nail through both heels. And when they nail it through, they hammer it, you know, to like curve it back so the nail didn't slip out. So you would be nailed in a weird contorted position and then your hands or your arms through the wrists would be nailed and that's and you would die of suffocation because you can't breathe and you breathe out and then you try to breathe again but you couldn't, you don't have the strength and they'd leave you up there sometimes for two, three days. So this is all, I mean the crucifixion is it's the worst way Roman citizens were exempt. If you were a citizen of Rome, you didn't get crucified because it was considered beneath you. But check this out, this is, this is what happens in crucifixion. They literally would crush the heel of the victim by driving the nail through it. Literally. And you can't help but think back to Genesis. He will crush your head even though you will strike his heel. The very thing that seemed to have defeated Jesus was actually the thing that brought about the victory over the dragon. The true version of the combat myth. The thing that all these cultures had circulating in their mindsets, in their imaginations, in their collective memories. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he does it. And he does it for real. And then Revelation presents it. Remember, Revelation pulls back the curtain and it says, yeah, Rome thought they just executed a Judean peasant. But actually what happened was the head of the serpent was crushed. The dragon himself was overthrown. The victory itself was won on the cross. That's why I call it Good Friday, not Bad Friday. Uh, It was good. What happened was good, even though it was horrendous. In the long run, it was good. So then in, in 10, getting back in Revelation in 10, John says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the ruling authority of his Messiah have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them day and night before our God, has been cast down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, the word of their martyrdom, as we saw last night. And they did not love their lives even unto death. In other words, there's this celebration because now it all makes sense through the eyes of Revelation. All the things that Christians were dying for, all the things that Christians were getting persecuted for, all of the hardships they were faced have now been shown, have been unmasked, and they've seen it in its eternal and heavenly perspective. They've realized, oh, this thing that we're a part of, it's not just a game. It's not just a club that we join. It's not just a place we go on Sundays and eat pizza and play games and then occasionally go on ski trips. It's not that. It's actually something that is of cosmic significance, of eternal significance. It's not just about me and Jesus. I mean, me and Jesus is part of it, but it is about so much more than me and Jesus. It's about the world, the universe, everything that's wrong being put back to right again through this thing that I have come to put my faith in, which we know of as the gospel. Universal proclamation. So then it says in verse 12, Therefore, heavens, rejoice, all who reside in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you. He's filled with terrible anger, for he knows that he only has a little time. 
And then in the, in the, in the actual chapter, which we won't get into tonight, but the, the devil does do what he does in all the combat myths. He tries to attack the woman. He tries to chase her. And then God brings the earth to come rescue her. Literally, a cavern opens up. The devil tries to flood her with this river, and the ground opens, and it swallows the river, and he's foiled. And it's all part of this version of the combat myth. But in the end, it comes to verse 17. So the dragon became enraged at the woman and went away to make war on the rest of her children those who keep God's commandments and hold to the testimony about Jesus. And so this is the moment of clarity in Revelation 12. This is the moment where the curtains pulled back and the Christians who are suffering under Domitian, just like their previous generation had suffered under Nero, they realize, oh, this is part of the plan. This is not unexpected. In the story, the devil, the dragon, the monster, he knows he can't destroy the woman. In other words, he can't stamp out the people of God as a whole. So what does he do? He goes to make war on her individual children. He goes to rage against and to fight against and to make life as miserable as possible for each and every one of followers of Jesus. And so that's what you see. Because the question will come up when, you're, when, when the readers are reading this. They're like, wait a minute. So this is saying that Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. It's saying that the victory was won on the cross. We sing about it all the time. Then why is the world so screwed up? If Jesus won on the cross, if Satan's been defeated, why is evil still so freaking real? Why is the world so messed up? Why are Christians on the shores in the Middle East have their heads cut off just because they're Christians for no other reason? Why can a punk kid from Charleston walk into a church and gun down people who actually invite him into a Bible study? Of all the places you'd expect God to step in and intervene, it would be a Bible study. And yet he didn't. Why do mobs in India, in Odisha State, Hindu mobs, radicals, persecute, harass, destroy people in the region of Candomal. Why? I've been to this place, by the way. This is a riot in 2008. I went in 2011. Um, it's still there. But, but why does this still happen? If Jesus won the victory, why does it look like the dragon is still very much in control? Revelation tells us he's been thrown down to earth. He can't accuse in heaven, so he's going to make miserable on earth. And we're in that period. Revelation teaches that we as Christians are in that period between Jesus conquering him on the cross and completely wiping him out and mopping up all of the remnants when he returns. That's what we wait for. That's what we long for. Um, There's a a guy named Craig Kester. He wrote the best book I've ever read on Revelation. And he says, he's describing this passage. He says, from a heavenly perspective, evil rages on earth, not because it's so powerful, but because it's so vulnerable. Revelation likens Satan to a rogue animal that the forces of God have corralled, driven it off the expansive plains of heaven into the fenced-in areas of the earth. The beast rampages within his newly limited circumstances, seeking to do as much damage as possible during the short time that remains. Satan rages on earth because he's already lost heaven. This is a crucial point that as Christians, I mean, the earlier you grasp this in your life, the more things make sense, even when they don't make sense. Even when you look at senseless evil, even when you look at inexplicable horrors, you can still understand we're not done yet. That's the promise of Revelation. It's not over yet. 
It's not over when we're in the thick of it. Think about World War II. This is the way that I describe it to people that helps. So in World War II, if you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, whatever, you've studied D-Day. D-Day was when the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy. When the Allies landed, once they secured this beachhead and started getting their supplies in and establishing a command center, everybody in Europe knew the war's done. The war's over. We're going to win. The Allies have landed. People in the concentration camps, people in the prison camps were cheering. The French resistance were cheering. Everybody was cheering because the Allies had landed. But, again, if you saw Saving Private Ryan, you got a whole two hours of movie left because they still had to go through and mop up. They landed. The battle was over. The war was over. Everybody knew it was inevitable, but you still had to go in and root out those pockets of German resistance. And people would still die in that process. There was still fighting to happen, even though the overall outcome of the war was a foregone conclusion. And it wasn't until VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, that's when it was truly, finally, like really over. And that's when there was no more killing, no more war. Everybody's cheering. The famous picture of the sailor bending the lady over and kissing her in Times Square. All of that, it was a joyous celebration. But in between D-Day and VE Day, a lot of people died because there was still fighting to be done. There were still entrenched, resisting Nazi soldiers who were not going to give up until they were actually forcibly taken out. So in the Christian way of looking at things, in the Christian combat myth, that's where we find ourselves. When you go to school, when you interact with your friends, when you're on social media, when you're doing whatever you're doing, you are part of God's forces that are pushing back the evil that's keeping itself entrenched. Or, depending on what you do and how you act and what you think, you could be on the side of that evil that's trying to push back and rage against God's people. And so that's the question that Revelation presents us with. Whose side are we fighting on? Whose side are we helping? Whose side are we aiding? This last quote, one third way to look at it, to think about all of this. It says, uh, this is a quote from another biblical scholar, and he uses the analogy of chess. He says, at a certain point in many chess games, the one who ultimately wins makes a move that sets the mating net, the checkmate. That is, from that point on, the outcome of the game is a foregone conclusion. There may be as many as 10 or 15 or even more moves left before the final checkmate move that seals the victory. During these in-game moves, the loser is still playing the game, still capturing pieces from the winner, but inexorably, unavoidably, finally, the winner makes the checkmate move and the loser is defeated. Often, the move that sets the mating net is costly. A sacrificial move that lures the loser into a trap. The winner may sacrifice the most valuable piece in the game, appearing to ensure defeat. In other words, a really good chess player, like a really good chess player, will do things that make the other person think, oh, I'm winning. I'm winning. Oh, I just took their queen. I've got this thing wrapped up. And then all of a sudden, checkmate. And they didn't even know it. That's what happens. That's what God does. What better chess player is there in the world than God? God did exactly that on the cross. He did exactly that with Satan. Set the trap. Set the bait. Satan took it. Thought he had the world, the, the, the Messiah, thought he had the son of the woman, thought he had the, the hero done for on that cross. And then all of a sudden realizes oh, that was it. 
That was the way that Jesus won. Revelation's central theme, it celebrates this. this you want to know what the book of Revelation is about? It's about what happened right here. This. This is what Revelation's about. It's not about nuclear wars. not about the Middle East. It's not about credit card chips in your head or your forehead or any of that stuff. It's about Jesus. It's about the Lamb of God who was slain. And it celebrates him in chapter 5, my favorite chapter in the book. There's a where all of creation cries out or sings out about this event, the crucifixion. And they all sing, you are worthy because you were slaughtered. Not killed, you were slaughtered. That's terminology used for a sacrificial animal where you slit its throat, drain its blood, cut it down the middle, pull its guts out, throw it on the altar and burn it. That's the imagery that's used. And that's what they're praising because Jesus was, that's why John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. He was the sacrifice. He went to his slaughter because you were slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransomed, you bought the freedom for God, persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You've appointed them as a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. It's the promise of revelation. It's a promise written to Christians that were going through some of the worst persecution imaginable, and it is the promise that has continued to fuel the faith of martyrs in every generation of the church, even up until today. And it's also the message that has challenged complacent and comfortable Christians in every generation of the church today. So Revelation's got just as much to say to my friends in India who literally have had people die for their faith as it does to my friends at Forest Hills who are on a ski trip having fun. The book speaks to both because it presents the same gospel. It says this is what we're fighting for. This is what the world really is. This is all of the things, all the hopes, all the dreams, all the longings that all of humanity has always had from the very beginning in some way, shape, or form. It's all found in Jesus. And Revelation shows it in a way that no other book of the Bible does. And it gives people this hope that they're not a nobody. They're not just some person living, walking around, breathing earning money, and then eventually dying. They're not somebody being persecuted by the government in a backwater province of some region in the Middle East. They're not a nobody. They're a kingdom of priests, and they will reign on the earth because Jesus is the high priest, and he reigns over all creation. So that's what Revelation presents to you, to me, to everybody who reads the book, which I hope you will. I hope you guys will study it in depth more. I hope Mike or Jeremy or some of y'all at the church will take you take the time to go through the book and read and explore because it has so much to say, especially especially in those times when you find yourself facing temptation, whatever it is. Temptation to, to, to do all of the traditional sins, getting drunk, having sex, all of that, or the normal temptations of just being a jerk, of just treating somebody unkindly, or being a bad son or daughter when your parents need you to not be. I mean, those are just as much temptations. They're just kind of seen as less. But it's all, it's all part of the same thing. It's all, are we on the side of the one who wins? That's the question Revelation leaves us with. And that's the question I'll leave us with tonight because I can't answer it. Only you can answer it. You, God. Um, that's it. So let's pray. Lord,